Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The gladiators looked around them, judging when to strike. They had stolen kitchen knives and even now some were nervous. They knew how to fight for sure, but once they acted, there was no going back. When two guards rounded a corner, the moment was thrust upon them. And now they moved like lightning, silencing the two surprised guards and bounding across the courtyard of the gladiator school where they were kept. They were slaves, and they had tired of their bondage. At first, they struck guards in silence, but once a maid saw them and screamed, all hope of stealth vanished. The seventy gladiators now roared defiance as dozens of guards streamed into the courtyard and a vicious melee ensued. The numbers were with the gladiators, but the guards had swords and armour. It was brutal, deadly work. The gladiators had the benefit of having been trained for duelling on sandy yards. Their entire existence had been used to perfect the art of individual martial prowess. And they were desperate. Almost immediately, the guards began to fall as knives moved past defences like quicksilver, flashing into unprotected flesh to draw screams and death. More and more guards arrived, but they did so in twos and threes, always finding themselves outnumbered and outmatched. Soon the gladiators had fought their way to the gates, which they unlocked and swung open, revealing the streets and freedom beyond. As sheer luck would have it, a cart was arriving just as they spilled out, carrying weapons for the school. The fugitives helped themselves and disappeared into the maze of alleys that made up the town of Capua. Within days they had begun to attract tens of thousands of other slaves, and as their ranks grew, so too did their menace. When they destroyed the first two Roman armies sent to bring them to heel, Roman irritation turned to alarm. So up stepped the richest man in Rome, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who was now bent on destroying these upstart gladiators and slaves. But coming too was Gnaeus Pompeius, otherwise known as Pompey. Crassus was determined to win the acclaim of a great victory before his rival Pompey got anywhere close to it. And our man, Gaius Julius Caesar, newly returned to Rome and recently elected as military tribune, was along for the ride. These two men, Crassus and Pompey, would for many years to come be two of the greatest influences on Caesar that he had yet known. And it all started with a huge gladiator revolt, led by a man named Spartacus. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to the second episode of The Rise of Julius Caesar, Maximus. Spartacus knew that sooner or later, Crassus would catch up with him. And even if he won a battle or two, the Romans would never give up. So, he wanted to escape north and then disappear into the lands beyond the reach of Rome. 
but his army was enjoying itself too much to do that, and so he made for Sicily, plundering all the way. The thinking was that he would raise even more troops from the notoriously rebellious slaves of Sicily and hold out there indefinitely. But when he paid a bunch of pirates quite a lot of gold to ferry his men across to Sicily, they took the gold and promptly sailed away. Almost like they couldn't be trusted. Spartacus was now trapped in the toe of Italy as Crassus built a 40-mile wall to bottle him up. The short story is that Crassus eventually forced Spartacus to fight at the Battle of the Solarius River in 71 BC. 50,000 gladiators and slaves faced around eight Roman legions under Crassus, around 40,000 men. The slaves launched themselves at the disciplined Roman shield walls, but thousands fell under the brutally efficient thrusts of gladii. It was a disaster for Spartacus, and he led a final, last-ditch assault on Crassus's own position, personally cutting down two centurions and dozens of Roman soldiers in the struggle. But he ended up being the personification of his own prediction. Despite winning some of the fights, he lost the struggle and was eventually overwhelmed and slaughtered along with most of his men. Crassus was over the moon and immediately gave chase to the 6,000 slaves who had escaped the massacre and fled north. He'd soon have them trussed up and could return to Rome in triumph, hailed as a hero. But he couldn't believe it when Pompey suddenly arrived north of him, captured the 6,000 runaways himself, had them crucified along the Appian Way, and got back to Rome in time for supper, where he took all the credit for winning the entire war. Crassus was enraged, and even more so when Pompey demanded from the Senate that he be made consul, even though he hadn't climbed the political ladder like everyone else was expected to do. The Senate had to tread carefully, or else they might incite Pompey to become another Sulla and march on Rome. So they turned to Crassus to help them. Both Pompey and Crassus still had troops in Italy, and the tension was so great that it nearly spilled over into civil war. But incredibly, the two didn't fight. Instead, they joined forces and were both made consuls in 70 BC. Caesar had probably been part of Crassus's army the entire time and watched the impotence of the Senate in the face of powerful men with interest. He knew his political future lay with these two men. Both Crassus and Pompey were populists like him, campaigning against the entrenched privileges of a senatorial elite who hoarded power for themselves. Pompey and Crassus in turn saw in Caesar a rising star and wanted him on side. It was a match made in heaven. Caesar set off for Spain to serve as quester, basically a finance minister, 
while Pompey and Crassus ran Rome as consuls. And it was here that two experiences began to seriously accelerate Caesar's quest to satisfy his gargantuan ambition. One day, Caesar found himself settling disputes in the ancient city of Gades, modern-day Cadiz, when he decided to visit the Temple of Hercules on a nearby island. There, he looked out at the vastness of the Atlantic, stretching impossibly into the horizon. The classical world knew that the Earth was round, so Caesar knew that if he sailed in that direction, he wouldn't sail off the edge of the world, but would eventually come to the almost mythical lands of the Chinese. But it wasn't that which challenged him. As he strode into Hercules' temple, he spotted a statue of Alexander the Great. Alexander had died 254 years earlier, around the same age that Caesar was at the time. That is, 31. The comparison struck Caesar like a thunderbolt. By his age, Alexander had conquered half the world, from Greece to India. Caesar had achieved nothing like it. So despondent was he that it said he wept at Alexander's feet, crushed by the realisation of his own relative shortcomings. And if that wasn't enough, he went to bed that night and dreamed edictly of having sex with his own mother. Caesar wasn't particularly superstitious, but once he'd woken up and finished retching, he went to a soothsayer to interpret the unsettling dream. The soothsayer told him not to worry, and in fact, that the dream couldn't have been more propitious. His mother was a symbol of the earth, and so the dream meant that one day he would rule the world. This was just what Caesar needed to hear following his little moment of weakness in front of Alexander the Great. The gods were speaking to him. He would rule the world, he just had to get a move on. So he did. He didn't even wait until his term in Spain had finished and left early for Rome via Cisalpine Gaul, essentially northern Italy. He'd made a lot of friends in Spain with the way he treated disputes fairly, and he made a lot more in Cisalpine Gaul. He deliberately travelled home that way so he could introduce himself around. He was already thinking ahead to when he might need to recruit from these regions, and when the time came, the investment paid off handsomely. Caesar wanted to rise and rise fast. But at this stage, he was still willing to work within the political structures of Rome. He committed himself to advancing along what's known as the course of honours, the path in the Roman Republic to the peak of power, that is, the consulship. To do that, you had to serve as military tribune, quester, aedile and praetor before you could even run for consul. Unless, of course, you're Pompey with an army behind you. 
It was a bit like the political ladder in the United States today. You might start as a local councillor before running for city mayor, then state governor or senator, and finally president. Of course, there were ways to jump straight to the top. Just ask Pompey or Donald Trump. Caesar was looking for a break, a way to rise faster. But unlike Pompey, he had no army to do it with. He got to Aedile in 65 BC, but two years later, in 63 BC, Caesar took an opportunistic masterstroke which would see his name suddenly shoot to the very top of the Roman social elite and boost his political cachet along with it. The chief priest of Rome was known as the Pontifex Maximus, and he had just died. The role was imbued with religious and political authority. The holder was given a huge and grand house, the Domus Publica, and best of all, it was a lifetime appointment. It was hugely prestigious. It was pretty much like being the Pope. The role, like most in ancient Rome, was elected. But through centuries of tradition, usually only very old and respected senators ran for Pontifex Maximus. But Caesar, a sprightly 36-year-old, spotted his opportunity and put his name on the polling cards. To say this was brazen would be kind. It staggered the Roman elite that a lowly young aedile would even think of running for Pontifex Maximus. It was crass. The fact he was already a regular Pontifex, or priest, held no real sway. It was way too big a jump. But Caesar didn't care. It would catapult his status to the stars, or should I say, heavens. It was his first real leap on the path to power, demonstrated to all that he wasn't simply going to rely on the usual course of honours to reach the top, and ultimately was one of the biggest middle fingers to the established senatorial elite imaginable. When most people think of the daring of Caesar, they often think of the pirates he was captured by, who he treats with good-natured contempt when they could have killed him on the spot. They might think of the incredible battle of Elysia, or, of course, his crossing of the Rubicon. But it's this move to become the High Priest of Rome, when he's still, relatively speaking, a youngling with not much more than a good record in the military and oratory, that displays the man's pure nerve. It's like your neighbour Steve running for Pope. I love him for this move because of its sheer astonishing audacity. To win, Caesar embarked on an ungodly level of bribery and stretched his credit, already highly stretched, to the limit. Caesar was in so much debt that if he lost, he probably would have run into exile or been banged up in prison. He even said to his mother on the morning of the election, 
Today, you will see your son as Pontifex Maximus, or as a fugitive. As the votes were counted, Caesar looked as nervous as he'd ever been. Twiddling thumbs, pacing up and down, fast, shallow breaths. He must have been on the brink of cardiac arrest. Finally, the verdict was announced. Caesar had won. He was Pontifex Maximus for life. After necking a few bottles of Falernian wine, Caesar moved his mother, daughter and all their possessions out of the Sabura, where he had lived since childhood, and into the Domus Publica in the centre of Rome. His throat-chokingly massive gamble had paid off. His only sadness was that his beloved childhood sweetheart, Cornelia, wasn't there to see it. She died a few years earlier. The entire Senate now sat up and took notice of this young man, Julius Caesar. Some were massively impressed. Many were massively concerned. They saw in Caesar the ambition of a new Sulla, but worse. While Sulla had been obviously brazen, to them it seemed Caesar was beginning to show a disdain for the Roman way, for republican traditions, and for populism over senatorial privilege. To them it seemed he was working to weaken the republic from the inside. But Crassus and Pompey were among those impressed, and while they supported him before, they really began to help him now. When Caesar went off to Spain as governor, Crassus paid off a huge amount of his debt so he could go. When Caesar did finally climb the ladder to power and made it to consul, it was Crassus's money which financed his rise. And when Caesar wanted certain laws passed by the Senate, it was Pompey's bully boys who put a friendly arm around the shoulders of senators when the time came to vote. The three of them saw in each other the means to power. Crassus had the money and Pompey had the soldiers. But what did they see in Caesar? What was he bringing to the table? Well, Crassus and Pompey read the wind like the expert businessmen and general they were, respectively. They saw Caesar's ambition, and they knew his political skill, oratorical brilliance, military record, and sheer bloody audacity would mean he would be right at the centre of Roman power games for decades to come. And he was, after all, the chief priest of Rome as well as consul. They believed, rightly for a time, that by helping Caesar he would help them too, to further their own aims, increase their own power. But all of that mutual backscratching had not gone unnoticed and it was slowly dawning to all that Rome's chief priest and consul, her richest man and her most celebrated general, were working together in a triumvirate. In fact, not long before, in 60 BC, Caesar, Crassus and Pompey 
had met secretly and made sacred oaths not to undertake any action that any one of the three opposed. Together, they effectively ruled Rome, so much so that Caesar's co-consul, Bibulus, hid in his home for nearly the entire year of their consulship. That year became known as the consulship of Julius and Caesar. The senators who had feared Caesar was a threat to the Republic were now beginning to bite their fingernails. And it turns out that those nails were going to get bitten to the quick quite soon. Because Caesar had been watching Pompey the last few years. The Senate had granted him near dictatorial powers to sweep the Mediterranean Sea clean of pirates. And when he'd done so in spectacular fashion, they had given him similar powers so he could finally, once and for all, defeat Mithridates in the east. But once Pompey had crushed Mithridates, he also went on to take Armenia, the Caucasus, what is now eastern Turkey, Syria, the Nabataean Arabs and the Jewish kingdom of Judea. In just a few years, Pompey had completely reshaped the geopolitical landscape of Rome's eastern frontier. And he'd done it all without the express permission of the Senate. Caesar was astonished. He saw all that a man could do if he was freed from the restraining yoke of the Senate, constantly having to ask permission of them to raise this army or conquer that land, and freed from its infernal, incessant power struggles. And while Pompey had set his sights east, Caesar set his north, because a horde of Gauls known as the Helvetii had just come streaming from the Alps. Julius Caesar had already been proclaimed imperator by his troops in Spain after expanding Rome's control to all of the Iberian Peninsula while he was governor there. He was already the wearer of the civic crown from his heroics on the attack at Mytilene. He had served against Mithridates and Spartacus. But now he was about to face the Gauls. And once he started, he didn't stop. Join us next time as Julius Caesar fights the fiercest and most numerous enemy that Rome has faced for centuries, and how it leads him to the coasts of the mysterious foggy island of Britannia. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.